So after uh, an accident that led to a traumatic brain injury as a young child, my guest today, Jim Quick, was labeled by a teacher. He actually overheard a teacher describing him as the boy with the broken brain. And he struggled to learn in a way that left him feeling not only personally demoralized, but also socially judged. And it took years longer, for example, for him to even learn how to read than other people. And this led to just constant struggle through all of his early years of education and life. But all of this changed when, after finding his way into college, and but then being on the verge of dropping out because he just wasn't able to make it work, he had a single conversation with somebody that would change his life and awaken him to his own potential, really, to not only keep up, but to cultivate the ability to read lightning fast, to devour knowledge at an astonishing speed and become a, I guess you would call it a super learner. And for Jim though, interestingly enough, because he's also kind of wired for service, that wasn't enough. He saw so many other people around him who had suffered like him, and he decided that he needed to share what he had been learning with others. So he began teaching his ideas while still in college, actually. That in turn launched a complete change in his life, in his career, and along with it, now a powerhouse accelerated learning and brain optimization company called Quick Learning. And fueling it all, um, a sort of a, I guess, a mission to share tools and ideas that both alleviate suffering and also eliminate a common source of self-judgment and social isolation, which is learning. Jim also hosts a really wonderful podcast called Quick Brain, where he shares conversations and tips designed to help you learn better, faster, and with greater ease. It's one of my go-to sources for wisdom that helps me uh, kind of work and live as close to my potential as possible. Jim is also a friend, and he is one of the go-to people in my life that I turn to when I need to figure out how to unlock my brain. So excited to share this conversation with you. And be sure to keep tuning in to our special second weekly episode this month as we introduce you to new musicians and singers and songwriters and performers every Thursday throughout the month of May. Super excited to bring this to you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author, Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. 
Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. I was trying to remember, we have so many friends in common, I was trying to remember the first time we actually met. And I don't know if this was it, but it was pretty close. I think because I remember being in a, a modified double wide trailer in old Vegas when Zavos founder Tony Shea was sort of, you know, like trying yeah. to rebuild that entire area. And you were hosting um, one of your superhero you events in this sort of modified, you know, like trailer. And it was just the relatively small group of uh, people who were there. And I was like, wow, you know, like this is just this really interesting, cool, eclectic gathering of fascinating people. And they're all here because Jim asked them. It's amazing, Jeff. Yeah, that was back in 2013. It was interesting because uh, we had hired a group from Stanford University that creates all the games for Survivor, all the challenges. And we put challenges all around the city because at that time, Tony was doing his downtown project and just launched it, wanted to host us there. And so that was was really special. Yeah, that that was a lot of fun. that was one event. You have done so many events now in different parts of the world of all sizes, gathering people really around a focus um, on how to be the best version of yourself. And a lot of that, of course, comes out of your personal story. It's interesting. I recently had Scott Barry Kaufman on who, when he was really young, he said he could barely hear for the first three, four years of his life. And then when he started to be okay, he had um, auditory processing disorders and was labeled as, as ungifted and slow and tested really poorly on IQ tests. And he said, he literally, um, he would be in class and hear stuff. And it was almost like he couldn't process it in real time. It was, he, he said he felt like he was downloading into his head so that he could replay it, like in his own time, sort of slower and process it the way he needed to process it. That was actually his, you know, that was his inciting incident that led him into this incredible career as a researcher. Mm around redefining human intelligence and potential. You have a different but oddly related story that brought you into a place where today, you know, from the outside looking in, you're an advisor to, you know, like some of the most accomplished people on the planet around learning and performance. But you came from a place where, you know, you were labeled and you labeled yourself anything but that person. Yeah, even hearing you describe it, school was not a pleasant experience for me. I feel like in those labels, they, they go a long way. You know, even thinking about it right now, I get my heart, I could feel it starting to race because uh, I never wanted to be there because of my learning difficulties. You know, I, I've had that, that brain injury when I was five and it was happened in class, so that didn't help. I was in kindergarten and growing up, 
my superheroes were uh, firefighters because in my neighborhood, I lived by a fire uh, house and I used to marvel because I just did this idea as a child to see these men and women go into harm's way. And there were, you know, some people like cowboys and other people like doctors or whatever it is. But um, one day in kindergarten, the teacher says that there was, uh, there were sirens outside and there was like a little gathering outside with uh, fire trucks and none of us could see because we we're only five years old outside the window. So we all grabbed our chairs to uh, prop us up and um, somebody grabbed, one of the other children grabbed the chair right from underneath me and I fell headfirst into a radiator and I couldn't remember you know, anything after that. My parents said I was never the same after that. Mm. You know, buried, something had changed. Did you end up in the hospital front? I mean, yeah. It yeah like it was there was some sort of bad concussion. It, it was. I, mean, yeah. I, had, I had multiple stitches and it was a traumatic brain injury. And I had learning difficulties. I, I remember a lot of friends in elementary school, they, they created this group called MASP and stands for More Able Student Program. Oof. And um, my friend- Talk about labels. Yeah. My friend Joey and I, we were the only two kids in our clique that wasn't asked to be part of that group. So we created our own group called LASP, Less Able Student Program. But I had um, had focusing issues, processing issues. Teachers would repeat themselves four or five times. And, you know, it's kind of like this imposter syndrome. I pretended to understand, but I didn't really understand. Yeah. And, um, I mean, what was it actually like? for you when when that was happening? What was your experience of when somebody would, would you'd be in a classroom and a teacher is teaching, doing what mm-hmm. they would do. Was it that you weren't hearing it? Was it that you just, you weren't, there wasn't an understanding of what was? It was, was it would be happen? like, almost like the equivalent I would imagine as if somebody was talking in another language. I didn't understand, even reading, I didn't, I couldn't read like everybody else did. It took me an extra few years to learn how to read, but I even remember where you remember you would get in those circles and you would have to pass around that book and you would have to read out loud. Every single time that book got closer, inch closer and closer to me, I would, I feel, I even talking about it, I feel it, my heart racing and just the panic that I would have because when I looked at words, they just didn't mean anything. And I didn't understand how other people saw something that was there. I just, it's like looking at hieroglyphics. And um, I think that's where a lot of public fear of public speaking came from, honestly. You know, I know it's a big fear people share about mm. getting in front of a group of people and being vulnerable like that. But I think it comes that it was imprinted in us at a very early age. And I remember when the book finally came to me, I would look at it and I'd want to cry. And sometimes maybe I would missed up and I would just pass the book on and the teacher would understand. But, you know, I, I didn't know I was, yeah, I was a young kid yeah. at that time. I mean, it's interesting also because I, I want to think that it's changing a bit in education right now, but I know like when we were kids, class participation was it was a big thing. You know, it wasn't your grade was based at least in part on are you the kid who chimes in, are you the kid who goes to the board, are you the kid yeah. who like participates, who reads when it's your time to read, or volunteers to do that. So, I mean, it's interesting because not only sounds like not only would you feel the judgment just from your yourself and sort of like the anxiety, but there's so much expectation that you'll be different in class and that you will understand, you will step yeah. up. I remember crying at night with my parents, just thinking that there was something, what was wrong with me. At the age of nine, one of my teachers was talking to another adult, maybe thinking I wasn't paying attention and pointed to me and said, that's the boy with the broken brain. 
you know, and yeah, I don't think it was malintent. I just feel like sometimes we do things that we're completely consciously aware of. And that became my inner talk because I remember every time I did badly on a book report or a quiz or an exam, or I wasn't picked in gym class for to be part of a team, I would always, I remember saying to myself, it's because I have the broken brain. And I talk about, you know, you talked about superhero you and being the best version of ourselves. I'm I'm excited about superheroes because that's how I taught myself how to read through comic books. You know, late at night, I'd be the kid underneath the covers when my parents thought I was sleeping with the flashlight and something about the illustration and, you know, the hero's journey kind of brought the words to life. And that's how I eventually learned how to read a few years later. But I think my superpower in school was being invisible. Like, I can't tell you all the time, Jonathan, like I would, 50 times a day, I would just hope that the teacher wouldn't call on me that I went, you know, I would never, all through school, even high school, I never raised my hand once because it just that panic of having all the attention. And I just, I didn't, I mean, maybe I wanted to be seen, I wanted to be heard, but in that moment, I just felt like I didn't have anything to offer mm-hmm. and I didn't want that, that spotlight in any way. Yeah. I mean, how did that, how did that affect you? Um, I mean, did, was there a sense of being other or did you feel like, well, kind of every, maybe everyone feels this way? No, I actually thought I was completely unique. Um, it's constantly, and even my, you can see my physiology even just changing because I'm regressing. Um, I, I would close my shoulders and I would just shrink and try to be smaller so I wouldn't be seen. I would always sit in the back of the class, you know, away from everybody. And I remember there, were, there was this one bully and I would just, because yeah, I'd be targeted because I'd be very passive and introverted, but not just introverted, but also shy. And I remember even when one day, like this bully was like, you know, kind of just, harassing me and I, and it wasn't so much the harassment. I just didn't want to draw attention to me, you know, and get anyone else to be able to see. And it's just, you know, it was just not a, not a happy time when I think about, think about school. And so I think a lot of times now I indulge in comic books still to this day and video games as, you know, fun hobbies. Cause I want to relive a lot of my childhood and yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because on the one hand you can look at that as a form of escapism but for you, it was, it was escaping into something that turned constructive rather than just hiding from a reality that you had to deal with. It became not just an escape, but a pathway. It did. It's kind of interesting that two of my biggest challenges growing up were learning and public speaking. And life had the universe has a sense of humor because that's what I do for a living is I public speak on this thing called learning. But I think through our, our struggles, just like a in the hero's journey, they can become strengths. And, you know, we have mentors along the way, we have challenges along the way. And through suffering led to eventually these quote unquote superpowers. And I think, you know, when we talk about superheroes, the reason I use that as a metaphor is it's somebody who has discovered and developed their superpowers. And I don't mean shooting lasers out of their eyes or, you know, leaping tall buildings, but. Although that would be cool. Yeah, I would say, I would say <laughs> no to those things, but. um our unique ability, our strengths, you know, our, our talents, if you will. But just having those things doesn't make you a superhero. You have to use them for some kind of good, right? And I feel like my passion is what lights me up or lights a person up. And my passion really is learning now um, because I wasn't, I was hungry for it when I was a kid, but I didn't know how to do it. But I think our purpose is what lights up other people. Like, so my passion is learning and my purpose is using that learning to light up others. And, um, you know, so I was, I was grateful to find it at an earlier age. Like when I was 18, I finally 
realize what I needed to do to be able to compensate and be able to quote unquote succeed in academics. And then I got results and then I got actually really angry and upset because I I went through all this struggling and suffering and I didn't have to. I could have been taught these things back in school. So what was it that turned that light bulb on for you? So there, there were two incidences. Um, in high school, I was failing out of English and they called my parents in. And, you know, my parents, um, they, they, they immigrated here, didn't speak the language. We live in the back of a, a laundromat. So, and it was, and I, they are my superheroes because they, they, they're not the, they're not the most intelligent or the wealthiest or the healthiest or the most spiritual, but they're, they're really good people. You know, they, they, they're very kind. They do what they say they're, they're going to do. They work hard. And then, you know, I had this pressure where I didn't want to disappoint them. And I have a younger brother and a younger sister, and I wanted to, to be a good role model, but I felt like I was failing them also as well. And um, it's funny, in high school, I never mentioned this, but there was only really one other Asian in, the, in my high school, and his name is Roger. And uh, he was one year ahead of me, and he was a genius. He, he got a... He got, he missed one question on his SATs, so he had to take it again, so he got a perfect score the next time. He was valedictorian, he was head of the debate team, the math team. And, you know, I feel like when I was coming through in high school, you know, people have cognitive biases for things, and and I feel like people, my teachers would think I would be the same kind, but I was on the, I was on the other side of the spectrum, suffice it to say, you know, I made. Yeah. And so those kind of pressures, but um, when I was failing out of English, my teacher brought my parents in and it was embarrassing. Um, and they said, Jim has to do something, you know, to be able to pass this yeah. year. And Did your parents um, have a really clear understanding of, of the depth of your struggle up until then? They, they, I, they did, and, but they were very encouraging, yeah. you know, but they, they weren't, I didn't have tiger parents that made me, you know, play the piano and, and the violin and, and, and get perfect grades because it was clear I was not going to do that. So they, they loved me for, for me. And you could tell my mother became a special ed teacher because she didn't know how to help me, frankly. Um, and because, you know, she would work with me every day and they would be patient, but I just didn't learn like everybody else learned because of, you know, my, my injury or my learning style and such. But my teacher was very, my English teacher was very understanding. She was like, um, I'm going to give Jim a chance and he could do some extra credit on a book report. And he wanted, he wanted me to research people like Albert Einstein and Da Vinci and, and do my, you know, spend time in a library and do that and write a book report on it. And I agreed to do it. And I was like, my parents took me aside and said, you know, really encouraged me that I could do this and to do a good job on it. So after every day after school, I would go in the public library and study this and write it. And when I was done after a couple of months, when it was due, um, my parents helped, helped me get it professionally bound. You know, so I was really proud of it. And I remember the day in class where it was time to turn it in. And the teacher at the end of class said, you know, I have a surprise for all of you. Uh, Jim, come up in front and talk about your book report. And you had no idea that was coming. And not at all. Not at all. I thought I would just turn this, you know, my, my work in and that would be the, like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm getting even dry mouth thinking about this, my throat, because I got so nervous. I was perspiring and my heart's beating on my chest. It wasn't a fear. It was like a real phobia. 
and I and I couldn't breathe. And I um, when I finally could say something, I told the teacher in front of the whole class that I didn't do it. And this is something I worked on five days a week for weeks, and I was really proud of it. And I was just too scared to present it. And um, class left. You know, I was the only one there, and um, I took the book report out of my backpack and I threw it in the trash. And um, I don't know, metaphorically, I could feel like maybe I was throwing away something else, like my gifts or my potential. But that—that's how horrible it was. Did the teacher know what was really going on? I'm sure she did. Like my my parents knew, my my teacher knew, but it, you know, it's just. And that was, that was my struggle, and that, that was my, my reality. It's like nobody knew what to do about it. They had compassion for you. They were trying to help, but they didn't know, like, what do we yeah. do? Yeah, and so I struggled a lot in, you know, in private, and I, I spent a lot of time inside my own creative imagination and, I'll, and, and alone. And so, you know, even at home, it's just, I, I wanted, it was the pressure of wanting to show myself and show my family and my friends that I was, I was worth something, but I just didn't know how. And... I think that's why when, when I was 18, I was lucky enough to get into a, a state school. And I, I thought freshman meant a fresh start, <laughs> you know, and I, I took it that way and orientation. And I was like, I remember, you know, going to orientation, my parents took me there and, you know, it's a big deal me going to college. Right. And I, we didn't have the money much less, you know, I didn't, you know, but I was the oldest and I, I wanted to show the world and my, and make my parents proud and show myself that I could do it. And um, I purposely f- picked a school. I knew no one, no one knew who I was. Cause I feel like even at that age, I knew that a lot of our energy goes to the expectations of other people. And because I was so conscious of how people looked at me and I was so insecure, I wanted to find some place where nobody knew me. So I wouldn't be stuck in there. Even in fact, I've never said this out loud, but I, I don't, when, when I visit family, I don't stay with my parents because I don't want to be in that same bedroom because, you know, how sometimes certain environments anchor you to mm, that. Yeah. I don't want to feel like what it felt like being like that insecure teenager or, or child. And so when I got to college, I thought I could make a fresh start. I took all these classes I was interested in. And um, instead of doing better, I did worse. And that was really shocking because college is markably more difficult because you spend a lot more time by yourself than you do in class. And then I was just like, I'm going to quit. After a few months, I was like, I'm going to quit. Um, this is a waste of money that I don't have. And uh, a friend of mine said, hey, because I, I didn't know what to do. Why don't, I'm going home back to California this weekend. I was in New York at the time to visit family. Why don't you come with and just get some perspective? And that word means a lot to me, you know, perspective. Whenever we, we're stuck someplace in a certain thought pattern or a certain situation, I feel like changing place, environment, or people that you spend time with really um, changes the way you see things and your point of view. So I agree to go because I've never traveled to the West Coast before. And was this a, a new friend from college who sort of had a different frame for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so they didn't know, we didn't have history together, yeah. but we, we spent time because I used to play tennis and, you know, people bond over common common things. And the family um, was pretty well off. You know, they had tennis courts and, and, uh, you know, the father walks me around his property before dinner and asked me a very innocent question that you would ask an 18 year old kid, how's school? And, uh, and as emotionally reserved as I am and definitely was back then, I just break down and I start bawling. (laughs) 
So for a lot of years, people have kind of pushed through the work week, you know, using weekends as kind of a time to let our bodies recover and relax. But honestly, with the hours that most people put in these days, that just doesn't cut it anymore. We need to feel good all the time during the week. And that is why Fully exists. Fully transforms the way we feel at work with desks and chairs and other tools to keep our bodies moving and our minds engaged. That is one of the reasons why I love my Jazzwick Nomad standing desk from Fully, which is great in small places. And Fully's Jarvis desk is the best reviewed standing desk online. Plus the Jarvis is gorgeous and surprisingly affordable and it will change your relationship to work. And Fully also offers more than desks. They have this kind of juicy lineup of active sitting chairs, depending on your style, you know, whether you're a fidgeter, which would be me or a traditionalist or someone who's looking for a supported standing desk. Fully incorporates movement into your day in order to get your blood flowing and your mind engaged. And Fully wants to help you bring your full active self to work. So Fully will be your partner in reimagining what your work can feel like. To transform your workspace, go to fully.com slash goodlife. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash goodlife. With desks, chairs, and other tools to get us moving, fully transforms how we feel at work. And you can always just click the link in the show notes. So I have learned from my wife that third love bras are the best, hands down the best. And it's not just luck. Turns out third love uses data generated by millions of women who have taken their fit finder quiz to then design bras with individual size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and premium feel. And right now, third love has 78 bra sizes with bands ranging from 30 inches to 48 and cups from double A to I, one of the largest ranges in the industry. And while other brands charge more based on size, which honestly, as a guy, I was like, who else does that? I mean, I don't pay more for a longer inseam or waist on my jeans. Well, at Third Love, bras cost the same no matter the size. Same comfort, same perfect fit, same fabrics, same style, same price, no matter what the size. And you get 60 days to wear it, to wash it, to put it to the test. And if you don't love it, return it. And Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Oh, and did I mention my wife, Stephanie, says Third Love is also the comfiest bra ever hands down. So Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash goodlife now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first order. That's thirdlove.com slash goodlife for 15% off today or click the link in the show notes. That's the worst question to ask me. And I tell my whole story about being the kid with a broken brain and, and, you know, I'm doing really bad in school and I'm ready to quit and I have no idea I'm going to tell my parents and I can't bear to disappoint them, but I can't do it. And it was a really dark time. And when I said that, he's like, Jim, why are you in school? You know, simple question, right? But I, and I was like, I don't know, that's what you're supposed to do, right? But I didn't have an answer. But he asked like, essentially, why are you there? What do you want to be or do? Um, and I didn't have an answer. And it's interesting how questions change our focus. And so no one's ever asked me that before, so I didn't have an immediate answer. And I go to answer him, and he just like pauses, and he grabs a notebook out of his pocket and tears out his shuffle sheets and makes me write down like all the reasons why. You know, you can kind of cue the music, like this is like the, men, you know, coming to, you know, some kind of realization. But I ended up writing a, bu- a bucket list, if you will. I didn't know what it was. And... um when I'm done, I start folding the sheets to put in my pocket and he grabs them right out of my hand. And honestly, can you just imagine, like this guy's obviously really, you know, 
successful, whatever that is. And I'm this 18 year old confused kid that just feels like out of place. And, and I've never ever written, I wasn't even conscious of much less written explicitly what my dreams were at that time. And some guys, strangers just reading them. And I've never shared that with my, anyone. And um, I don't know how much time goes by, Jonathan, but he looks at me, he's like, Jim, you were this close to everything on that list. And he spreads his index fingers about a foot apart. And my natural reaction is, you gotta be kidding me. There's just no way, give me five, 10 lifetimes, I'm not gonna crack that list, I'm not that close. And he takes his fingers, his index fingers, and he puts them to the sides of my head, meaning what's in between, you know, my brain is like a bridge and, you know, the key. And he takes me into his home, into a place I've never been to before a room. And it's wall to wall, ceiling to floor, covered in, in books. You know, I mean, can you, I had a library in somebody's house that's just like epic right now. But at the time it wasn't because I've never read a book cover to cover. I'm still a poor reader. It's like walking to a room full of snakes, right? Like that, that's how my association was to books. But make, makes it worse, he starts grabbing these snakes off the shelf and, and hands them to me. And I start looking at these titles of books and you depreciate it. They're the biographies of men and women that in history and early personal growth books. And he says, Jim, I want you to read one book a week. And automatically I'm like, I can't, you gotta be kidding me. And I go into my story and I'm fighting for my, my story. You know, and I really find that if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them. You know, when we argue for, oh, I have a horrible, people come to me all the time. I have a horrible memory. I'm too old. I'm not smart enough. Yeah. It's not just your limitations, it's your identity. Yeah, and that's really like what it was. your identity was the identity of a person who had a limit, limited capacity. Yeah, it's like, that's not me, you know? And and that's, that's interesting, because like, that's been, when I think about it, when you say that, it was like, at that time, it's like, yeah, school's not me. I'm not, I'm not right. well, it's like you were, But it's not even school. I mean, you were told at, the, at a really young age, like your your identity is the identity of a person who's not capable of performing on the level that everybody else is. Yeah. So it's like whether you're in school or whether you're at work, wherever it is, it's like unless something happened to change that identity, to change your understanding, it's almost like you know it wouldn't matter if you were in school or somewhere else. Like that's just who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had all the evidence to confirm that identity, you know, because I right. would look for it. Right, and that's what you just keep racking, and then you ignore all the other stuff. I don't know if you're planning on sharing, but do you remember what was on the list? On the list of my my, yeah. my bucket list, if you will? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the things that I was writing on the list were things I wanted to do for family because this are, these are things they could never afford or would never, even if they had the money, they wouldn't do for themselves. So it's like we, you know, we had, you know, one family car that they would share and, you know, in, in carpool, we had one, you know, we didn't live very large. My, my family never had a lot of possessions and that wasn't important to us as much as experiences, you know, but even growing up, we would always go kind of local for vacations. Like I grew up in Westchester right here, but we would go to Lake George and they, but they would, they would make it amazing. Cause I never felt like you know, we had like lack, but, but they didn't have a lot of the abundance in that, in that area. So it was like things like family vacations and home and experiences and, I, I remember I didn't really understand it because they always made the best of everything, but I grew up playing tennis. My father and my mother, that's how they kind of met. Um, but um, I, I wanted a tennis racket and I just didn't realize that my family couldn't afford a tennis racket, you know, like that. So it was just things for them and my brother and sister 
that you know we didn't have as much as our people, our friends that we grew up with. But because a lot of the things have to do with family, I agreed to read one book a week. You know what I mean? Because he, when I told him that I can't do this because I have all this schoolwork, I was like, Kev, are you deaf? Have you not listened to everything I've said? And he and I said, I have so many midterms and, and stuff that's back at, waiting for me at school. And he said, Mark Twain's favorite quote, which I didn't realize it was Mark Twain's quote at the time. He said, don't let school get in the way of your education. And then when I said, okay, but I still can't commit because if I do, I'm going to follow through with it. And that's when he took out my bucket list, which he still had. And he read Jonathan, like every single thing on that list, you know, the vacation I wanted to take at Disney with my family and all these things. Um, you know, my, my father immigrated here and he left his brother and sister back in, um, in, in Asia because they couldn't afford to have him at 13. They couldn't feed him. So he came here to live with aunts and uncles, but it was like a trip back there. And it was just little things like that, that, you know, I recently got to check that off on the bucket list with my dad. Um, I had a trip in Australia and I brought my dad and, and we went back to Jakarta where he grew up and I got to see where he was born. And, and, and that meant something. And we went to the stadium. Um, they have these Asian games. It's kind of like the Olympics there of Asia. And the last time he was in that stadium, we, we, got, we took a tour there, um, was with his father right before he left. And his father passed away right after that at the age of 13. So it was pretty epic for me to be there in that stadium with my dad because last time he was there was with his dad mm. who passed. That's why he came to America because he didn't have, you know, his father passed. And so, <laughs> um, so I got to fly my family there and we got to share that experience, but that was high on the, that was top of my bucket list because that's why family became so important because when my dad left, you know, his mom and his younger brother and sister, you know, that changes your values in terms of what's most important. So we always grow up with that mantra, family's most important. Um, man, <laughs> um, so because he read those things off, like go to Indonesia and stuff like that in my goals, I agreed to read one book a week. And so now I'm back at college, fast forward, you know, I'm, then I'm at my desk and I have a pile of books I have to read for school and a pile of books that I promised to read. And I already couldn't keep up with one of those piles of books. So what do I do? I just live in the library. And I don't eat, I don't sleep, I don't work out, I don't spend time with friends, I don't do anything other than live there. And, and I'm just wasting away, you know, um, losing all this weight. And I end up passing out of, out of sheer exhaustion. And I fall down a flight of stairs in the library, hit my head again, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> I woke up two days later in the hospital and I thought I died. And maybe a part of me wanted to or wished I did because I was suffering so bad. And because what's hard is when you feel like you could be better and, and you think it's unfair that you have, you're working three times, four times harder as everybody else and still not even getting average, you know? And I just felt like unfair and I felt I was disappointing and I just feel like I was not worth anything. And I thought there had to be a better way. And at that time, the nurse came in with a message for me. I mean, it, was a, it came in the form of a mug of green tea but on the, the green tea was a picture of a drawing of Albert Einstein, which is kind of interesting because that's what I did my book report around. Right. At, um, at the end of high school. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it had the saying, that quote that you've, we've all heard in different versions, the same level of thinking that's created your problem won't solve it. And it made me ask another question, like what's my big problem? My big problem is I don't 
I'm not smart enough. I don't know how to learn this stuff. And how do I think differently? It was like, I don't know, maybe I could learn how to learn this stuff. And then I asked the nurse to bring me uh, the course bulletin for next semester for classes. And I looked through all the courses and you know that, you know, it's all classes on what to learn, math, history, science, Spanish, but there were no classes on how to learn, you know, how to focus, how to be creative, how to think, how to solve problems, how to read faster, how to study, remember all the things that I, that I teach now. Had you, I mean, I'm curious also, had you, because of the struggles that you had earlier when you were in high school, did you have any sort of like augmented education or special ed classes or tutors or people who were, who were there specifically to help you try and get those yeah. skills? I had, um, so in my struggles in, in high school, I had a group of smart friends, which made it easier in a way, but also harder in a way because of comparison. Like my friends were all on the debate team and on the math team and because, okay, so like this this idea people have of high school with you have these cliques. So I was with the geeks and the nerds and because we played Dungeons and Dragons and played video games and read comic books because that was our shared, you know, hobbies and interests. But the difference between me and them is they were top of their class. I'm not making a generalization, but I kind of am because those are the, that's what they've gravitated towards and those were my interests. It made it, it, made it well, easier because they helped me, you know, and they helped to tutor me and, and help me with some of my work, but it also created a standard of comparison that made it even more clear that I wasn't, you know, so smart as everybody else. So when I left the hospital, I put my studies aside because honestly it wasn't helping very much anyway. And I started, I found a book in visiting a friend in a dorm room. There was a book on study skills. And there was a chapter on speed reading. And it was the first time I, I didn't even know that existed. And I just started studying, studying, and I became obsessed with this question. Like, how does my brain work so I could work my brain better? Like, how does memory work so I could work my memory? And I, I started getting all this information and studying it for about, about six to eight weeks, about two months. And then I remember the moment that a light switch went on because my grades started to improve, you know, almost immediately, you know, but really two months into it, because I remember I was in this big lecture center, you know, 400 people or whatever. And back then there was no internet, um, but they had those slide projectors, like with the- The overheads. Yeah, the overheads. The transparencies. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. The transparencies that rolled out and um, the professor put in, you know, some some texts on there and- I, you know, me, who's generally always quiet, trying to be invisible, always, I, I laugh out loud, like literally laugh out loud, like not, not, uh, you know, but like, you know, a couple seconds of just laughter out of nowhere. And everyone turned around and looked at me, which is my nightmare, because I can't believe I did it. I was just in a place where I just, and then about 15 seconds later, more people started laughing, right? And Essentially what had happened was he put a transparency on there with that had like some humor and some and a joke and I read it really fast, you know, processed it really fast. And then everyone else in the class started, you know, do so a little bit later, a little, a little lag time. But that's when I realized that I was learning faster and processing. And um It's like your Jeopardy champion moment. Yeah. Like you read the clue fast and <laughs> it was else. it was yeah. like my limitless moment, but I didn't realize and it was it was interesting because, you know, I never made a sound in class ever for anything, but it was came out kind of spontaneously. And it, you know, it was just I, I left with a different step, you know, when I left that class of, of confidence and I 
and my grades improved and then my life improved. And how I ended up doing this for over a quarter of a century later is I got upset that this wasn't taught to me earlier on, like simple adult learning theory and study skills and note-taking skills and test-taking skills, all these things. And um, yeah, I was upset that I'd struggle and suffer. And Because I mean, I, I would imagine at that moment when you know, like in that moment in that classroom when you awaken to this and you leave and you have, you have a spring in your step. There's like two things happening. One is like, oh, hell yeah, like I actually can do this. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is like what you were just saying, I was like, wait a minute, you know, the last 18, 19, 20 years of my life, yeah. I was actually capable of doing this also, but it took sort of me getting to yeah. being brought to my knees and then scrambling to figure it out myself to do it. Like why, what if I had, this skill set when I was four, five, six, seven, and what if other people did too? And that that became my, I got almost militant about it because I got angry and that's not my, that's not my go-to emotion, but I was really upset because daily suffering, I mean, maybe it's made me a better teacher or coach because I have empathy for people that struggle. And then, you know, that feel like, you know, when you talk about the word identity, where people feel like they're not enough you know, I feel the nature of your work and, you know, some of the work I do and, and some of the people who are listening is really about this word transcending, ending the trance. I think that there's this mass hypnosis through media, through marketing that says we're broken, just like I was when I was a child, that we need to be fixed, that we're not enough. And, um, and I know that because I was very ingrained, even though I, I had a positive childhood, you know, with my family, but there was this always conscious elephant in the room that I brought with me everywhere that, you know, I don't belong, you know. But also, I mean, it's like you're, there's a labeling and a separation and an allocation of resources that starts from the earliest moment in life and then in school. Like in school, whatever it is, second grade or whatever it is, like, you know, like you can take the gift, the gifted and talented test, Mm -hmm. you know, and if, and if you don't get the score, then you're in with everybody else. And if you do get the score, then you get the special teachers and you get the extra resources yeah. and you get all this. And But the interesting thing is, A, that's so wrong <laughs> because even you know, like from a pure science, you know, it's not predictive in any way, shape or form. The same kids take the same test in ninth grade and you have a completely different mm-hmm. outcome. But also, I mean, just creating that identity, you're not expressly telling the vast majority of the kids who don't get into that, well, you're not good enough, you're not capable enough, but you are. And then the resource allocation changes. And what's fascinating to me is that that exact same sorting hat and then resource allocation thing follows you for life. Because you get into, if you look at the major corporations now, you know, like one of the things that they're trying to do is figure out who are the quote high potentials, Mm -hmm. which bugs me. Because then what are like because then, oh well, the high potentials are the one where we're gonna give them the support and the structure and the mentoring because they're the ones who are going to track to the highest levels and take us to the next place. But it just completely I mean that sorting and labeling and cutting off of of resources follows it exists in the biggest organizations today. And I had that even in third grade when they created that MASP group in elementary school, more yeah. able student program. I got to one day sit in on it, you know, um, 
as part of it. And they had this huge like thought bubble, like a literally fans in this huge plastic, um, like, I don't know what it was. It was like this like plastic castle that they had in there and they had, um, and they would do these, ex- and w- which also it's reinforcing, you know, and creating that more, even more of that separation and ability and, and, and belief. But I was really amazed that they, they, they had access to that. Yeah. My mission really is because I suffered and struggled so much is no brain left behind, you know, and I know what it feels like to feel like you're not enough and to feel like you're falling behind and that you're working and it's unfair. We tend to ask this question around intelligence and have an identity around how smart we are. You know what I mean? Whether it's an IQ test or it's an SATs or these standardized tests. And I don't think they're as accurate and as timely and relevant as as the world we live in today. You know, in an age where, you know this, like everything's going to a you know AI and automation and outsourced, you know, what makes us valuable as human beings, it's our creativity, it's our imagination, it's, um, you know, strategy, things that they don't necessarily teach or prepare us for in today's world. And, and really, I feel like it's not how smart you are, it's really how are you smart, that there's people have different ways of learning um, and understanding things and applying things. And, you know, and you've heard this conversation, we've had it before, that we grew up with a 20th century education, which at the turn of the 20th century, we're talking about working in farms and factories and taking direct orders. And our school system's kind of like that, you know, where our age is kind of like, you know, we, we're, we're, we're put in these little buckets and it's kind of cookie cutter. And I know it's improving in some areas and it's just a system issue where we live in an age, you know, I've said this before, but electric cars and spaceships that are going to Mars, but our vehicle, when it comes to learning and education, feels like a horse and buggy. Like it literally, if Rip Van Winkle woke up today after decades of slumber, the thing he would recognize most are our schools. And it's not a slight against teachers. You know, I I have multiple teachers in my family. It's just, you know, a system issue for the world we live in today, that the world has, you know, progressed a lot. Yeah. I mean, but what do you think that issue is? Because we we keep hearing the call of, you know, on a culture level, on a society level, we've got to keep up. Mm-hmm no matter what country you're living in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we can't lose the edge or we need to go and we need to be able to sort of like match up to whoever else is out there. The clear way for that to happen is education. And yet the resources allocated almost across the board, especially in the United States, to education is such a small fraction. The incentives that are given to teachers that go into the profession, yeah. the support that's given to them, the compensation very often that's provided, you know, it almost pushes people who want to be of service, who are really bright, who can innovate and change the paradigm away from it, right. rather than saying, like, like being really inviting and doing the things to evolve it. Like, do you have thoughts on why we're still so locked into the place that we're locked into? Yeah. I mean, part of it is human beings in general are very resistant to change. You know, I mean, anyone who's tried to even change themselves you know, the people, this comes up all the time where people, especially with family and friends, you know, I think a lot of people could relate to, you listen to podcasts, obviously, right? You watch these YouTube videos, you go to conferences and, you know, and you read books and maybe a family member or two are like, why are you going to another thing and listen to all that stuff all the time? And sometimes it's the people that care about us the most 
Maybe, and it can be sincere, right? Because maybe they don't want to lose you. They don't want you to, to outgrow them or, or be disappointed and get your hopes up. So it could come from a caring place that they could be sincere, but also sincerely wrong sometimes also. But we move sometimes towards the expectations of, you know, our peers. And so some people, things are generally, it's hard enough to change ourselves, much less change people around us. And so I think systems are don't change as easily, just like, you know, that... That story you you hear about the the family you know of these moms that are just they always cut the ham and they cut the edges and right, like why do you do that story. why do you do that why do you do that but eventually it you know comes to great grandmother we had a very small pot <laughs> and we don't question things as well um, so status quo small to change and people are some people are incentivized just like in every industry to for it to remain. Yeah, well, it's like they'd say the mavericks, you know, of of every industry, the people who shatter paradigms, they're hated, they're hated, they're hated, they're hated, they're hated until it's accepted. They are like the innovators, the yeah. people who change the world. Um, but there's because they, there are so many people. There's so much. We keep going back to this identity thing. There's so many people where their identity is built around the assumptions that created the existing paradigm, and if you tear down that paradigm, you're tearing down their, their identities unwittingly. And they will fight that tooth and nail because then who are they in the world? Yeah, and that's a big part of unraveling because even people who want to learn faster, I think, you know, when I started this and I, I even started my first corporate business, you know, training in, in companies was when I was 22 with people twice and three times my age. And sometimes it's hard even at that point because some people feel like they've been in an industry and they have 30 years of experience. You know, and you know the joke, right? It's not 30 years of experience. Sometimes it's just one year of experience repeated 30 times. But one of the ways to learn something better is to forget what you already know. But that requires you to set your ego aside and have more of an, a be, in Zen, right? They talk about a beginner's mind and emptying your cup. And, and we can never update it enough because especially today, the, the half-life of information, because, you know, we've there's so much new research. I read recently that a someone graduating school is going to have anywhere from eight to 14 careers. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've seen also. Not jobs, like different, because who knows verticals, like where the world's going to be. None of us know where the world's going to be five, 10 years from now. And that's why I feel like out of all the subjects that we can learn in school, a good starting place is just having more curriculum that's relevant to people at a meta level. You know, they call it meta learning, right? The science of learning how to learn. Because school teaches you what to learn and what to think, but not necessarily how to learn and how to think. And I feel like, you know, if you could learn how to learn, then you could apply that towards music or math or martial arts or marketing, you know, to a greater degree. All those subjects are important, right? It's, you know, math, Spanish, all those things. It's just, you know, allocating resources towards things that may be high leverage or more of a force multiplier. Like all the stuff I learned about parallelograms, I'd rather have learned about how to do my taxes, you know, like, cause now there's no parallelogram season coming <laughs> yeah, up I seeing that. <laughs> that I need to like, I have to prepare for parallelogram season, but tax season that would, would have been... be cool though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's just learning how to learn, I think is a good start. And also nowadays it's hard. I, I don't envy teachers because kids are growing up swiping and on digital devices and they're hooked and they're addicted to it. And, um, which is changing, you know, rewiring our brains for distraction. And I mean, we could have a whole topic about that, but how do you go from growing up on joysticks, like where information is flying at you billions of, of pixels at a time to being sitting down in a classroom being lectured to, and the human brain 
you know, like the 20th century education prepared us for the 20th century world, but it trained us to be passive. And I'm not saying in all cases, because certainly there are exceptions, but as a generality, it was a teacher repeating information to you and rote learning, and you were supposed to consume information quietly by yourself. But the, we know this, the human mind, it doesn't learn through consumption. It learns by pulling information and creating. It learns more through co-creation, right? And socialization and, and using our nervous system and, and rolling up our sleeves and getting involved. And even we know kids now that are more, and I'm generalizing here, more kinesthetic learners. You know, we know that moving your physiology, you know, as your body moves, your brain grooves, you create brain-derived neurotropic factors. And it actually, it's like fertilizer for the brain. But those kids that especially need that, you know, we, we punish them for acting up. And actually the worst punishment is we don't let them go play outside and recess when they could use some of that energy and we make them sit in detention. And so it's really having appreciation for who we are as individuals. And I'm not saying it's at all easy, but it's kind of interesting with technology. I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's wonderful that we could all potentially watch a video and learn history from the, the, the greatest Oxford professor. You know, never before has this been you know, we have instant access to all the knowledge in, you know, in the universe. But I think maybe the way teaching would go would be they'd be more facilitators, be running experiments with each other, you know, mm -hmm. creating, you know, groups that, and, and, and with a special focus again on, on skills that would, that people could use, you know, in, in their career and in their life. Yeah. And also learning how to learn. I mean, I think making it more experiential and there is a big move in some places towards experiential education. Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's a whole- There's definitely like, pockets of progress. Yeah, no doubt about it. But I, I mean, it's interesting that there's, experiential is definitely um, super powerful. I see people flipping the classroom where, you know, whatever the sort of like the, the actual knowledge transfer part of it gets done remotely or on video or at night. And all the time that you're with a teacher is actually interactive experiential time. It's processing mm -hmm. together. Which I think is really fascinating. But also like the bigger thing, like you talked about, like the instruction on learning how to learn, the meta-learning part of it, you know, it's like that's the master key yeah. for everything else. And if you could transfer that so much earlier in life, it makes everything else um, come easier. We all kind of want to make sure that all the stuff we get to clean our stuff is healthy and good for the planet. And of course, it also does the job. That is why Grove.co is so awesome. So Grove delivers natural brands you love like Mrs. Meyer's seventh generation, Burt's Bees, and Grove takes it straight to your doorstep. We're kind of hooked on the seventh generation laundry detergent, but Grove has so much more than just household stuff. There's personal care, baby, and pet stuff too. And right now, Grove has a super cool offer for new customers. You select your favorite Mrs. Meyers spring scents, peony, lilac, or mint. And then when you place your first order of $20 or more, you'll get a free Mrs. Meyers cleaning set in limited edition scents, including spring hand soap, spring dish soap, spring multi-surface spray, and a Grove collaborative cleaning caddy and walnut scrubber sponges. Pretty cool. So try Grove now before this exclusive spring offer runs out. For a limited time, Good Life Project listeners get a three-piece cleaning set from Mrs. Meyer's Spring Scents, a free 60-day VIP membership, and a surprise bonus gift just for you when you sign up and place your order of $20 or more. Check out Grove and our special offer at grove.co slash goodlife. That's grove.co, not .com slash goodlife. Grove.co. Again, that's not .com. <laughs> 
slash goodlife, or just click the link in the show notes. Circling back to, we never sort of really described what you ended up doing. I mean, you hit a point where you start to discover this and you're in college and it transforms your experience of who you are and what you're capable of doing. And it also lights a fire to create this mission inside of you to say, okay, so I'm going to go deep into understanding, to devour research, to digest, you know, like yeah. every form of understanding, learning, accelerated learning, meta-learning, so you can really understand this and then turn around. And like he said, when we just started this conversation, not just go out there and use this yourself, right. but you then become the person who wants to share this with the world. I feel like, again, you know, like passion and purpose for me, passion is what lights you up. So learning all of a sudden lit me up and then purpose is how you light up other people. And so I wanted to show people how to learn. That became my mission. And this was over 25 years ago and I'll be doing it the next 25 plus years also as well. How I, how I got started though was and I don't share this very, very often, but it's, so I was underweight. I was 117 pounds when they found me in the hospital, you know, when I was in the hospital and the food wasn't really great, like most colleges and my friends were ordering like Pizza Hut and Chinese food and all this stuff and I couldn't eat. And, and I was tutoring all my friends already because I was just helping them because I was just like, Hey, there's a better way. And I can't, I can't, and it was kind of like the elusive obvious. And a friend was like, hey, why don't you tutor this? And that way you could eat like the rest of us and such and, and also help people, which I was committed to doing. And I didn't know how to do that because I've never done anything like that before. I was on, I was on the other end getting the, getting the help. But I noticed that the one night there was a classroom that wasn't being used. And I was like, okay, I had this idea of what if I put five, 10 people in that room and taught them for a couple hours what's working for me. And then maybe afterwards, one or two of them want to be tutored and I could help them, you know, and, and help them to be able to make their lives better and make a little bit of money so I could eat. And so I go back to my dorm room and I take a piece of paper and I marker and I write free speed reading memory class, you know, get better grades in less time. And I put the classroom Thursday, 7 p.m., right? And the next morning, I just make a few copies on the way to class. I put it on bulletin boards. And uh, fast forward Thursday, seven o'clock, I go there and I just, I'm just walking there, ex hoping just five people show up and that they'd be interested in this so I could uh, serve them. And I turn the corner and there's this crowd of people, Jonathan, right outside the classroom. And honest to God, my reaction is, oh shoot, I hope whatever's going on ends soon so I could do my thing. And I walk there and I get, you know, approach them and I, I can't get, there's this, I can't even get in because there's a tall guy in the, in the doorway and I tap him on the, sh tap him. I was like, what's going on inside? And he looks down at me. He's like, there's a speed reading class. And I swear to you, I say, wow, what a coincidence. Like, what are the chances there's another speed reading class in the same room at the same time at the same, you know, t night. And I push my way in and there are people standing in the back, it's places packed and nobody's teaching. <laughs> so you see where this is going, right? And it takes my slow brain because your perception is, is highly tuned to like and shaped by your beliefs, right? And I don't believe everyone's there for me, but I realize that they are. And I do a head count and instead of five or 10 people, there's 110 people. And remember, I, I'm 18 years old. I'm wearing t-shirt shorts. You know, there's a lot of assistant professors and law students, you know, older kids there. And I have nothing prepared to talk about. And I'm phobic of public speaking. I've never done it ever. 
And so my heart is beating out of my chest. I literally cannot breathe. I'm perspiringly crazy. And I don't know what to do. So I leave because I just can't do it. And then I, I wish I, that would have been a better story, but I leave and I go by these fountains and water always relaxes me. I don't know if it's that my, it's my element or what, but I just close my eyes. I do this little meditation because I, I have so much anxiety because I can't even go back to my dorm room because my friends will tease me. But when I'm doing this walking meditation eventually back to my dorm room and I hear a voice inside my head and it's my mom's. And she essentially says, you promised these kids that you're gonna help them and you're disappointing them and you're disappointing me. And unconsciously walking back to my dorm room and I stop and I take one step back to the classroom. And um, it's kind of interesting metaphorically that one step in another direction in your life changes your destination. Some people will call it your destiny. And I go back in and I apologize. And honest to God, I, for two hours, I teach, but I don't remember any of it. It's embarrassing. But at the end, you know when you, things just flow through you and you don't know, it's just, but at the end, I come out of this like trance and I just like, I don't know how to help everybody here or even if you're interested, but you know, I need about 10 hours to teach you this, um, what I've learned to help me maybe two hours a week, next five weeks. And I say, you know, I get $30 an hour because I used to get that teaching tennis back, back in high school. And if you're interested, I'll be in the student center tomorrow at noon. And Jonathan, everybody just gets up and they leave. I mean, they had, there's zero interaction with me. And I just, and I'm, when everybody leaves and it's probably what, a nine, 10 o'clock at night, it's quiet, right? And I'm in the room alone and I feel two things. I feel completely confused, like what just happened. And also I feel completely exhausted because I, you know, when you get yourself to do something you never thought you could do. And I'm just spent emotionally, physically, mentally, and I fall asleep right on the floor, on the carpet. And it's the best sleep of my life. And sleep is a, one of the biggest challenges I have in my life. I don't talk about it, but I suffer from very, struggle with very bad sleep apnea. And I stop breathing 210 times a night and I wake up not being able to breathe. And I have CPAP device, I have surgery and dental devices, but um, for about five years straight, I slept for about two and a half hours a night. Not because my mind is busy or anything. I have amazing control to be able to calm my thoughts. I fall asleep rather quickly, but I just wake up with this, this issue. But I end up having the best sleep ever in my life. And I get woken up the next morning by the class coming in you know, next morning. And I freak out because I'm on the carpet and I just look up at all these people staring at me, drooling on myself. And I just, I run back to the class, back to my dorm room shower, go to breakfast. And I was like, go to class. And then, oh, 12 o'clock, I promised I'd be in the student center. And I'm going to student center hoping one person didn't think I was a complete moron. And when I get there, there's that entire group like waiting for me. And at the end of two hours, 71 of these kids signed up for a program that didn't even exist. On a side note, they did it for $300 a person because I didn't realize math, <laughs> 10 hours times 30 hours. I didn't realize that kids could go to ATM machine even better and take out $300 because I didn't have an ATM card and I didn't know what that was. So now I'm not even 19 years old and I have over $20,000 cash and I've never seen $500 cash in my life. And I go back and I think about what I'm going to do with it. And um, I think about my mentor, you know, not letting school get in the way of your education. And I use practically all of it. Part of it I use to feed my body because I'm so underweight and get, get my pizza and <laughs> chicken and broccoli. 
but the most of it I used to reinvest in my education, which is audio cassettes back then. I don't want to date myself, but every book I could get my hands on, on my craft, I traveled around the world learning this art of meta-learning and anything that be able to optimize my, my brain, my cognitive function, my focus. And um, the reason why I'm still doing this to this day is because one of those young ladies, she was actually from a different school locally. She read 30 books in 30 days. Now, I just want that just to sink in. If you could go online and just get 30 books on leadership, negotiation, relationship, leveling, whatever. And I found out, I didn't want to find out how. I knew how she read them, but why? And I found out that her mother was dying of terminal cancer, was given 60 days, two months to live. And the books she was reading were books on health and wellness because she was determined to save her mom's life. And six months later, I get a call from this young lady and she's crying and crying. Can't get a word out of her. And I find out that they're tears of joy, that her mother not only survived, but is really getting better. Doctors don't know how or why, they called it a miracle. But her mother attributed 100% to the great advice she got from her daughter, who learned her from all these books. And that's at that moment, I realized that if knowledge is power, Learning is our superpower, and it's a superpower we all have inside of us. And that's what my commitment is to people, regardless of their age or their background, their career, their education level, financial situation, gender, history, IQ, that who we are is actually even greater than what we're demonstrating. And if you're struggling and suffering with digital overload, digital distraction, digital dementia, which is new term in healthcare, like memory loss because we're so dependent on our smart devices, it's not our fault. It's just we weren't taught how to do these things. And my mission, coming from the kid with a broken brain, is to make every brain just better and brighter and leave no brain left behind. Yeah. And it's it's so interesting the way you describe that also. Um, and one of the things that I think has sort of um, has been an unspoken theme in this conversation is shame. Yeah. Um, I think so many of us have shame when we feel like there's a level that we're capable of performing at, um, but we can't figure out how to access it. Or we just feel like we're not actually capable of performing up to the level that that society expects of us, our family expects of us, our friends, they, they're all around us, and then we create for ourselves. And if we believe that we just have what we have, you know, and it is what it is, and there's nothing that can really be done about it, then... You know, that can spiral you into a pit of despair, futility pretty quickly, and shame around, like, well, I don't want anyone else to know this and blame, like, you know, to a certain extent, this is this is me, it's my fault that I can't do these things. There's interesting parallels also with your work. You know, you're out in the world now for two and a half decades, taking those seeds that were planted in this one experience in college and building a company and building programming and building experiences that have now helped millions of people literally um, change the way they learn and then perform and interact with the world. And you have, and you're regularly on stage, which is kind of fascinating too. You being this person, you being on this mission, you now having stepped in the place um, that you defined as fear on so many levels um, for the first half of your life and now spending the second half, you know, hopefully the another five halves um, doing the same how has the experience of you being the person who is not just learning, but sharing, uh, leading, affecting and empowering others to experience change in their own lives, 
How has that changed you? Yeah, I mean, the greatest gift that I get from doing this daily, because it's, I still to this day, as you mentioned, do the, these coachings and these these speakings from stage. Um, I never take for granted on social media when when I get tagged a hundred times a day for some kind of, and it's not just oh I could read faster or oh I remembered everyone's name today. You know, I had that at the office. It's more like I had this experience with my child. You know what I mean? Something similar to that because I always come back. The, my referential index, like everybody else, is themselves. You know, and I really want to talk to that that person who was willing to do the work but didn't know where to go. You know, I didn't know that there were books. Like I could, you know, go to a bookstore and pick up a book on this uh, subject or get a, you know, these resources. But it, it lights it lights me up. You know, I I have to confess that if somebody else would do this, I would support that person because I'm still very introverted and shy. You know, that's still and and I'm okay with it. I know that there are things I could do to get over you know, stage fright or, you know, being more confident in certain situations. But my nature, you know, as we read books like, you know, like Quiet and and, and the nature of that is more to be behind the scenes. But um, I had an, a near-death experience a handful of years ago. And um, it made me just think about, when you think you're going to die, it makes you think about what you're leaving behind. And um, I feel moral obligation to do what I'm doing. And that's really what gets me on stage. Whether it's 100 people or 10,000 people, it's still nerve-wracking for me. You know, I could reframe it and, and into excitement. I could use my, you know, my tapping or I could, I could visualization. But at the core of it, it's not my nature to do that. And then afterwards to see everybody and, um, and say hi, hello to everybody and answer questions and photos and stuff. I love hearing the stories because it feeds me, and but it also, my nature it is it takes it takes energy from me, um, and because of my sleep challenge, which is still I still have these breathing issues, I have a finite you know I've, I've trained myself to look for what the where the gift is. So my everybody has struggles and adversity, and I believe that difficult times could define you, they could develop you, or they could diminish you. Like we decide what it's going to be. But when I had these learning challenges and I didn't know where to go, I found the two gifts that came from it is I became a great learner and more of an educator on learning and public speaking um, with the lack of sleep um, because it's still strenuous, especially getting on planes to do what we do to speak. Um, and also it's it's depleting when I, some speakers go on stage and they're energized by it or performers are energized. For me, it's not my nature. It takes an immense amount of resources to do that. But the gift for my sleep, for example, when I ask where's the gift in this challenge, number one, it's forced me to double down on everything I teach, meaning I'm a product of like what I teach. I wouldn't be able to perform the way I do without having these routines and these these processes. But the other gift that's come out of it is everything in my life is hell yes or hell no. You know, because when you have a finite amount of energy or emotion, like right now, Jonathan, there's nowhere I'd rather be with no other person because that's, I feel like a lot of people are depleted or burnt out because they say yes to too many things and uh, it takes up a lot of energy. And for me, I only do the things I feel completely aligned to do. 
um, because I have, I, you know, with lack of sleep, um, I have to be, I have to guard that time. And so what I do is I push myself to do it, even when I didn't sleep the night before, um, out of more obligation, because what does feed me are those, those stories, because I can identify with some aspect of not feeling enough or feeling shame that there's something that's individually wrong with us. And my message to people, I, I, I always compare people's life to an egg, that if an egg is broken by an outside force, life ends. But if it's broken by an inside force, life begins and great things begin, tend to start on the inside. And my message to people is they have greatness inside of them. They have genius inside of them. And if you're struggling in certain ways, it's just only because maybe you weren't exposed to the, these tools. And it's unfortunate that it becomes self-fulfilling and that that lack of resources becomes a lack of internal resourcefulness, but that's not the case. You know, that, that we have incredible resources and resourcefulness inside of us. Yeah. It, I mean, if we are aware enough to understand our nature mm -hmm. and then understand like how to how to gather and harness those resources rather than how to just constantly delete ourselves and ignore them. And I, and I feel having personal agency, you know, I, so Stan Lee recently passed and he was a big hero and, and a friend, you know, the past 10 years. And, you know, he has this phrase that says, you know, Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. And the first time he said it to me in a conversation, I still with my learning challenges and I have a little dyslexia, I've reversed things. And I was, I reversed, I was like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And the opposite is also true. With great responsibility comes great power. When we take responsibility for something in our life, we have great power to make things better. And, and I feel like that's a starting point to be a, a great leader or a great learner, a great parent is to take responsibility where a lot of times, you know, we make mistakes and we feel like mistakes define us, but I feel like mistakes don't define us. I, I posted this the other day that if you make a mistake, and this is a big challenge for a lot of people when it comes to expectations of other people. Like I was doing this training for Jim Carrey and we take a break in his home and we're making guacamole. And I was just like, why do you do what you do? Like I'm always interested in human motivation, going back to like why this young lady read 30 books in 30 days. Cause I feel like we know what to do, but we don't do it. And he was like, what drives me, my mission, Jim, is I act completely crazy and insane on, you know, on camera because I want to give people permission just to be themselves. And that's why he does it. He calls it his religion is freeing people from concern. That's his concern is that, that I believe that you could, I believe you could go broke buying into opinions and expectations of other people that when we die and we're in a coffin in that box, there's no room there's no room for possessions. So I don't acquire a lot of possessions, but there's no room for regret. And I spent a lot of time in senior centers, an inordinate amount of time, because my my grandmother, when I was a child, passed away of Alzheimer's, and I don't I don't talk about it a lot. But you know that also shaped me because when I would go see her, when she was living with us, but when I would spend time with her, when she called me the wrong name or she repeats something we just talked about. You know, I got, that was, again, when I was a young child, also going through my own learning challenges, that, that was on the other spectrum, you know, and it leaves an impression, you know, and your, my inspiration really was my desperation because I didn't know if that was going to happen to me. And plus I was already starting out really in a bad place, but I spent a lot of time 
um, in nursing homes and senior centers, um, especially when I just lost my great aunt also uh, recently, because I think there's, first of all, a lot of wisdom there, because I feel like we can learn from everybody, that everyone is our teacher, that the life we live are the lessons we teach. And, um, you know, generations, I love hearing those stories and I'm not there to necessarily improve their memory, but just, I love them telling stories because that wisdom, because it polishes off their memories when they share those stories. But when it gets really real and they talk about this thing called regret, those that do, invariably it's always, I somehow shrunk my life because of some, some somebody's opinion or expectation of me. You know, the neighbors, the Joneses, my parents, you know, I went to become a doctor, whatever it is. And I feel like that, that it's hard that sometimes, again, we give the power to the people that we care about and we don't maintain our sovereignty. And I'm not saying get rid of your family, your mom, whatever, your in-law, whatever, but it's also, you, we should choose who we, who we give that kind of agent, that power to. Yeah, I think the agency is a word that you've shared a bunch of times. I think it's really a lot of this comes down to that. And also it's a belief in the possibility that you can stand in a place of agency in your own life. Because sometimes we don't know that and we don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, I mean, you're never going to, then you have no reason to even try yeah. to be intentional about the way you live your life. You wake up in the morning and just react, react, react. And, and, that, and that's, that's the it. thing. A lot of the, and even the wording we use, because you're, you have such a, you have such an awareness of, of words and how they, they affect our mind. Even when it comes to learning, people wake up and, they, you know, they, they miss say they write and they, they wake up and say, I hope I have focus today. You know, I hope I have some, I'm creative today. I have, I have, and these aren't things that you have. You don't have focus. You don't have concentration. You don't have creativity. You don't even have memories. These are things that you do. So you got to take those nouns and turn them into verbs. And when they become a verb, that gives you a level of agency or personal power because you could do something as opposed to, oh, I hope I have some energy today, as opposed to you doing things that give you energy and puts responsibility, starting going back to with great responsibility comes great power. And the metaphor that I use is just the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. You know, a thermometer, its only job and function, it reacts to the environment, right? And as human beings, we do this, we react to politics, we react to the weather, or how a client treats us. But those who can identify more with the thermostat, sure, certainly a thermostat gauges the environment, but a thermostat, you know, sets a temperature and then what happens to the environment? You know, it proactively changes. And I feel like that we have responsibility. Like I teach this, this four steps to learn any subject or skill faster. And I just use the word fast. My last name, you know, obviously is really quick. You know, that's my father's name, my grandfather's name, but you know, this is kind of my destiny, but fast, the acronym. And we've talked about actually two of these elements already. If you want to learn a subject or skill faster, the F stands for what I would recommend is forget meaning just forget temporarily what you know about a subject. You know, if you want to learn sales or marketing, it, it helps to just be, you know, set aside what you currently know just so you could potentially learn something brand new. Because I think as coaches, the two things I look for a coaching client are some kind of drive or interest or motivation, right? Because you can't give that to somebody. And the other one is that they're teachable because somebody could be driven, but not open-minded or teachable, they're not going to get any kind of result. There's somebody who can be open-minded, but not be motivated. 
And so those are the two qualities that I look for. So the F in FAST stands for temporarily forget what you know about something because you could potentially learn something brand new. Also forget about situational things because I think in a world full of distractions and app notification, social media alerts, if you're listening to a podcast and you're also trying to multitask, that doesn't work because we, we know that that's a myth. Yeah. Could, could you fold expectations under that too? It's like forget about expectations. Yeah, absolutely. I like that also. So forget about, you know, your current knowledge about something. You know, you could always come back to it and reevaluate it, but, you know, forget about maybe situational things so you're not splitting your focus because we know that's not very effective. Forgetting about your ex- expectations. And I would even see, I would even add into expectations your limiting beliefs because your limitations, because some people, you don't know what you don't know. And the reason why, you know, when I get in front of groups you know, I memorize a hundred people's names or words or numbers, I don't do this to impress them. I do this more to, more to express to them what's really possible and maybe to change some of those beliefs in terms of what's possible. Cause I didn't know that was possible until it was demonstrated for me. And so I'm not saying these are easy things to do, like forgetting about situational things. Tactically, what do you do? Yeah. Just uh, write, 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 write them down. If you're thinking about the kids or the dry cleaning, Write it down. Don't resist it because you resist it. You're just going to think about it more and just know that it's written down. You can come back to it. So the F is basically that, you know, be, start with a beginner's mind so you can learn something new. If you want to learn something faster, this, the A is active. And we talked about that too. Then 20th century learners, learning train us, education train us to be passive. And here's the thing, learning just like life is not a spectator sport. You know what I mean? And we learn the best, not through consumption, but through creation and co-creation socially. And so it's not just your neurological networks, it's our social networks and collaborating and it's so, it's so important. And so to be active in it, not ex- and that tech comes out to responsibility too, because a lot of people say, okay, it's my coach's responsibility to do this to me or the person on stage or the person I'm listening to on an audio book. Yeah, but you, like I'm going to pay you to fix me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, so we have no responsibility, so we have no power. And so the A is being active, as active as possible. Take notes, ask questions, you know, experiment. The S in FAST stands for state, which is just a fancy word for your current mood of your mind and your body. But we know learning is state dependent. We just, it's just proven. And, you know, I think one of the keys to long-term memory for people who want to have a better memory is information is forgettable. We forget information all the time, right? Because there's billions of stimulus. But information combined with a level of emotion multiply becomes a memory. And we know this because there's, you know, all of us have a song, a fragrance, a food that could take us back to when you were a child. Because that information tied with that emotion made it memorable and unforgettable. But the challenge is most people learn things in a very subdued, sedated state, meaning that if you think about school, what was the primary dominant emotion people felt? You know, like when they're sitting in chemistry class or whatever, what were they feeling? Probably half the room is bored, the other half of the room is confused. But on boredom on a scale of zero to 10, on the emotional scale is zero. So if information times emotion is, you know, long-term memory, then if the boredom is zero, anything times zero is zero, and so that's how learning is state dependent. And so what I would say is who controls how we feel, right? Do we wake up every day and just saying, you know, no, because we get set on scale. We and simple hack is on a scale of rate yourself on a scale of zero to 10. How do we feel? How motivated do we feel? Maybe say it's a four and then see, test yourself and challenge yourself, play with yourself, say, well, how do I make it go from four to a six? 
you know, well, maybe if I visualize this or reward myself with this. And I would also, this, when I talk about state, introduce, reintroduce the state of play. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why I love your work so much is, you know, education is here and empowerment is here, but entertainment is just so much more engaging. And you just look at this industry, you know, in the industries, but, and somebody the other day is like, Jim, no, I don't play anymore because I grew older. Like maybe it's the opposite. Right. Got it backwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe yeah. you grew older because you stopped playing. But children, they learn incredibly well because, you know, going back to Jim Carrey, they they they're not concerned about what other people think, right? You've heard these seen these memes before about a child learning how to walk and they could fall and four or five six times they don't say, okay, I'm not going to walk anymore. But you know, as adults, we try singing or we try coding or we try something. And going back to the power of mistakes, I always tell people, make your mistakes old old, O-L-D, you know, O is, first of all, own your mistakes, right? Because most people want to blame somebody else, but if it's a mistake and hurt somebody else, apologize for it, be accountable for it and do the best you can to fix it, but own it. And the L is learn from it because that's one of the purposes. You know, we don't, I don't really think that failure is the opposite of success. I just think it's part of success, right? It's a stepping stone and we only fail to learn something. And there's always a gift in something because we get feedback. And so you need to be able to learn from it. And then finally the D in making mistakes old is don't repeat them <laughs> because that's the biggest challenge because we, we are so wired to be consistent, you know, with our thoughts and everything and our identity, but we end up dating the same person, you know, or, or making the same investment or make, or making the same horrible hire or whatever the mistake or in our health, we eat the same bad food. Or mm. so we just repeat the same thing over and over again because we didn't learn from it. We don't remember the pain from eating that, all that gluten or, you know, or that, that kind of person or whatever to, you know, to have a relationship with. So I would say D is don't, don't repeat it. But going back to the S and, and fast is just be aware of your state because there's no point in learning something and I, I, my, the state I love is curiosity. I, I, I gratitude and curiosity go, have gone so far, you know, in my life because when things get hard and you have adversity, which invariably it happens, I always come back to what am I grateful for? And a thought experiment I do regularly because I, I like these imagination, creative thought experiments is, you know, what if tomorrow the only things I had in my life were the things I express gratitude for today? You know, and I just go through and I, and I feel it because that state. And then curiosity, it's, there's, there's a Rumi quote, and you, you probably have heard this, but it says, sell your cleverness for bewilderment. And bewilderment is such a cool word. Like, you know, like when's the last time people felt bewildered about something? But I like, and then Jim's like, oh, I don't have curiosity. It's like, you don't have curiosity, you do curiosity. It's like you ask questions to get curious about things, but we've, we have, we've been on autopilot for so long and we just hope things just happen to us or don't happen to us and hope it's just a kind of a sucky strategy. And so, um, state monitor your state. Cause if you're in a curious, fascinated state, you're going to learn faster. And finally, the T is teach the T in fast is teach. And I know you're an ex, you're a master at this is if you want to learn faster, learn with the intention of teaching somebody else, you know, so I would recommend people whenever they're moving forward or re-listening to this conversation or what have you is when you're learning something and you want to learn it better, think about somebody that you love or somebody on your team, somebody would benefit that you wish was learning this with you and learn it for them and learn with the intention of teaching them or giving a TED talk, you know, on Monday about it. Cause you know, if you were had to teach it, would you focus better? Would you take better notes? Would you would own it and become part of who you are 
And, you know, I always tell people when you teach something, you get to learn it twice. And so intent matters just like in life and it matters in learning. So. I mean, it's interesting. Also with that last one, you've kind of turned on your head social the social dynamic because in the early days, like most of us experience um, the social pressure of teaching something as like a negative thing, but you're actually using that as oh, yeah. motivation to for growth. You know, so there's a social context which now becomes something which actually motivates you to become better um, yeah. and to be in service of also. I went to, back in the past life when I was in law school, the person who graduated number one in the, number one in the class ahead of me, you know, she had like, like these astonishing grades and I once asked her like, how do you do, like how do you study? And her answer was, I never sit down to take a test until I've learned the material on a level where I would feel comfortable walking into the same room and teaching it. Mm. And I was like, oof. I just I, got goosebumps. I am not getting anywhere near that. I, I literally just got goosebumps. I, I, yeah. call, them, I call them truth bumps. Mm. But I feel like, you know, there's that phrase that we, we all hear in culture saying, those who can't do, teach. Like you can't do business, teach business, right? But I actually, there, I have to be honest, the first time I heard that phrase, I never, I didn't process it as a negative. Uh, I actually thought like, oh, if I can't do something, teach it so I could do it. And, you know, we've all heard the phrase, you know, we teach the thing that we need to learn most. But when I read a book and I'm an avid reader now, I learn with the intention and the excitement to teach and to be able to share it. And I feel like it encodes it differently in my nervous system. And so I think that ultimately, again, the life we live are the lessons we teach. And I part of my passion and learning the way I do you know, we learn things for two reasons. One, to benefit ourselves, but then to benefit the people around us. And, um, yeah, I always play it forward. I, I really think it's, the equation is learn, earn, return. You learn so you can earn. And I don't mean financial treasures, you know, obviously those, you know, learn faster, you know, faster you can learn, the faster you can earn, especially in today's economy. But all the treasure of your life, it could be the health, your health, your relationship, anything, but then you could return. You have more to be able to return. So you could be, do, have, and then share. I think that, that that's a really key for a fulfilling life. Yeah, which actually feels like a really good place for us to come full circle. Mm. Um, so if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? You know, my, my big thing right now is, um, I mentioned this accident that I had a few years back. And it made me think about, you know, it makes you reflect on things and what you're gonna leave behind. And then for me, a good life is somebody who showed up and played full out. Meaning, I feel like you can only be truly, you have a really good life if you have the curiosity to know yourself, like self-awareness. I think that's why we journal, we meditate, because we wanna know, we do our sparkotype, right? We want the awareness to know ourselves, because that's a great gift, because we're all different and our differences are superpower. But you need the curiosity to know yourself and then when you, after that or during that, knowing yourself, then you need the courage to be yourself beyond other people's expectations. Because I feel like a lot of people feel burned out or they feel tired, not because they're doing too much, because they're doing too little of the things that make them feel alive. And you need, in order to do that, you have to have self-awareness. But then once you know it, what your passions are, your strengths are, your purposes, then you have to do it. And that's that's a different game. That knowledge is not power, that it's that's the biggest myth in the personal development industry. 
You know, it's the, all the books, tapes, coaching programs, podcasts in the world, they don't help. They don't work unless you do. And so a good life is, Bruce Lee says, the key to immortality is first living a life worth living. And for me, it's knowing yourself and then being yourself. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.